Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Title of today's message is When God Gives Men What They Want. I invite your attention to the first chapter of Romans. We've been there for a few weeks now. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32, our text today. And as you're making way there, I'd like to make some introductory remarks about this text. First of all, what you're going to hear today is countercultural. It's the opposite of what your children are being taught. It's the opposite of what our culture values today. Um, but it is the truth, secondly. It is the word of God. And third, if our country doesn't change the trajectory, it's unlikely what I'm going to say today will be illegal in our lifetimes. So let's uh, hear the word of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now we established last week that beginning here in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 going through chapter 3 verse 20, Paul views himself as a prosecuting attorney and he's laying out the charges, the case against all humanity. Why humanity is worthy of God's wrath and why God is just in his wrath. Now we defined God's wrath last week uh, using David Schrock's definition the holy action of retributive justice towards persons whose actions deserve eternal condemnation. Another way of saying that is that God has a fixed disposition of anger towards all sin all the time. And we further noted that God's wrath towards sin is just and appropriate. It's not temperamental or capricious. And we finished last week's sermon with seven reasons why God's wrath is just towards sin. Number one, because all men everywhere have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. It's not as though they don't know the truth, it's that they don't like the truth. And so they push the truth down so that they can function, they can sin and not worry about it. Secondly, there's the internal witness that God has given every person. We are born with the knowledge of God. His law is written on our hearts. Every person is born with a conscience, which many people have seared through abuse and through repeated sin. 
Uh, he's also given us, thirdly, natural revelation. The Bible says, by what has been made, the birds, newborn babies, the Grand Canyon, the stars, the planet, all of that gives mute testimony of God's power and of his nature. And because they have that internal witness and the witness of natural revelation, they have failed, fourthly, to honor God. They know they didn't make all this, but they won't give God credit for it. And that shows that humanity as a whole is thankless and prideful and arrogant. And ultimately what man does, rather than worshiping the true God that has revealed himself in all these ways, is that humanity has exchanged that which is of supreme value, which is closeness and intimacy and fellowship with their creator for the trivial and the worthless. Statues of himself and then later on, all sorts of things that he worshiped down to creepy, crawly things. And so bottom line, last week we saw that all men and women are without excuse for their rebellion against God. And therefore, God's anger against sin is just. Now we said that the reason that humanity fails to submit to God is not for lack of evidence. It's not an intellectual problem that he can't solve. It is a moral problem. Man simply doesn't want the God of the Bible in his life. The God who knows all, who judges his sin, rather he wants a God of his own imagination, of his own making, one who doesn't hold him accountable for his sin. Ultimately, he wants to be the captain of his own ship. That was the failing of our first parents, Adam and Eve. They wanted to be God. Now, for the rest of this chapter, the Apostle Paul goes into great detail concerning how God responds to humanity uh, when humanity says, we don't want you in our lives. And again, the title of the message, when God gives men what they want. Now, he begins verse 24 with that transitional word, therefore, therefore, it means as a result of. In other words, as a result of the fact that humanity wanted to push God out of their lives, what did God do? Well, Scripture says God gave them over. He's speaking of humanity writ large here. God gave humanity over, and he says he, this three times. Mark that phrase in your Bible. Three times in these few verses, he uses that phrase. God gave them over. In verse 24, he says, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So what does it mean that God gives humanity over? Well, it means that he yielded them up without restraint. In other words, God allowed man's depravity to go to its, nat its natural conclusion and have its natural consequences. Now we know about God by observing his creation and by reading his special revelation in the Bible that God is a God of order and not of chaos. He has created the universe with rules and scientists uncover these rules and the world operates according to these rules. For example, gravity. If I were to drop a raw egg on concrete, it's going to break. Uh, water always runs downhill. It will find the lowest point. So we know that the world operates with some physical laws and rules. But everything, including humanity that God has made, also operates within the rule book that he sets. And according to Paul here in Romans, when God removes himself and his restraint, it manifests itself in laws. 
Uh, just as surely as water runs downhill and what goes up must come down, when God removes his restraint from a culture, it's going to lead to certain things. And those things are lustful hearts, degrading passions, and depraved minds. First, let's look at lustful hearts. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to what one translation says, vile impurity in the lust of their hearts so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever, amen. Vile impurity, that's a word that uh, brings to mind filth. It brings to mind that which is impure and it speaks here primarily of sexual immorality. Now, many of the pagan religions and the early first century church were surrounded by these pagan religions were based on sexual immorality disguised as worship. The temple prostitutes were called priestesses and the way that you worship and expressed your worship to your false God was by engaging in sexual immorality. And so I think that's what he means when he says they exchanged the truth. This is a departure from God's intent for worship and certainly a departure from God's intention for sexuality. God's intention for sexuality is found right away in the book of Genesis where he gave one man and one woman for a lifetime. Jesus endorsed that plan in the New Testament at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and, and he quotes from Genesis. And so here we find a departure from what God has said is good and right and appropriate and natural, and it becomes debased and it becomes dirty and impure and vile. This is the natural progression of sin. And it starts in the heart and it's carried out in the body. Look what he says, in the lust of their hearts so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So one of the prevailing philosophies in the ancient world in which the apostle Paul lived was that the body and the soul were two distinct and separate things. Now, in a sense, that's true. We are comprised as human beings of this body with teeth and hair and muscles and bones that wears out. And then there's the eternal part of us, which is our soul. But where that philosophy goes wrong is that one never affects the other. The Apostle Paul says that's simply not true. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 15, to Christians surrounded by this immorality all around them, he says, do you not know that your bodies are part of Christ? Shall I then take away the part of Christ and make them parts of a prostitute far from it? May it never be, in other words. And Paul understood that there is uh, something especially vile about sexual sins because they join what Christ has declared to be pure with that it is unpure. And it does affect the soul and not just the body. Now keep that scripture handy, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because we're going to come back to it before the end of the service. So the first natural progression when God gives men what they want, which is to have him out of their lives, is lustful heart. Secondly, it leads to degrading passions, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for that which is contrary to nature. And likewise, the men too abandoned natural relations with women and burned in their desire towards one another, males with males committing shameful acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of sins. Degrading passions. What are degrading passions? Well, the word degrading means shameful or detestable, that which is not worthy to be spoken of. Now, there was a time, and some of you remember it, in our own country, 
where certain behaviors were considered shameful. And we have lived to see a day in which those same behaviors are not only no longer considered shameful, but they are celebrated as virtuous. And what you see here is a repeating over and over of this cycle of depravity from culture to culture. Jeremiah, the great prophet of Israel, saw it in his day, and this is what he wrote of what he observed in his own culture, Jeremiah 6.15. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. Now, that's hitting very close to home, isn't it? That seems like an apt description of what we see going on in our own culture. That which was not spoken of 50 years ago in public company is now celebrated in every form of media and our nation as a whole has forgotten how to blush. Now, the sin of homosexual behavior is contrary to nature. Remember I said this is countercultural. If you go to any public university and announce that homosexual behavior is contrary to nature, you're likely to be censured. And this is what the Bible says. Now, what does it mean that it's contrary to nature? Well, uh, remember what depravity does. It causes everything to be turned upside down. What was once virtuous is now uh, degraded and, and put down and called bigotry. And what once was shameful becomes celebrated and virtuous. And professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And this is what's happened. The Bible says, woe to those who call evil good and, and good evil. And that's exactly what has happened in our own culture. So, so it's contrary to nature in the sense that God created man and then he created woman and they were designed to be something beautiful and to work together. And, and so the sins of homosexual behavior um, are contrary to that. He first speaks here of um, women who give up um, what is natural to them, that is to have a husband and to reproduce children. And uh, secondly, says the men too. Now, what the culture would tell you is that it's uh, simply a lifestyle, that you're born that way and, and you can't help it, and that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, this is nothing new. Um, homosexual behavior has always existed in one form or another. In fact, the book of Genesis talks about entire cities that became obsessed with this behavior to the point that, that God brought judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It has always existed, but what is new in our own culture context is that now it is celebrated publicly. And I would go one step beyond that. Not only is it thought of as equal with heterosexual behavior, but it is advocated in many settings under penalty of censure. That is, not only do you have to accept homosexual practices to be accepted in our culture, you have to be an advocate of said practices. And I think that's another manifestation that our nation as a whole has forgotten how to blush. But there is a, a third manifestation of God's removing, removing all restraints. Remember, humanity said, God, we don't want you in our lives. God's judgment, he says, okay, I'll give you what you want. And here's what happens just as surely as water runs downhill when God removes all restraints from humanity. And that leads to thirdly, depraved minds. 
verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. There's that third time he uses that phrase. God gave them up to depraved minds to do those things that are not proper. People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, just as surely as what goes up must come down, just as surely as water always finds the lowest point, when God removes his hand from humanity, depravity will go to its logical conclusion. And in this third section, he describes what that looks like. Now, this happens in cycles through the ages. It happened uh, in the time of Noah, didn't it? that God gave humanity over to a depraved mind. In describing what human culture was like before God sent the flood, the scripture says their heart was evil continually. That speaks of a depraved and a debased mind. They were always thinking of some new way to sin. And then Paul gets very specific and he lays out exactly what these sins are and what they look like. He says they're filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, slander, hate, insolence, arrogance, boastfulness, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. It's, it's almost as if he's reading out of today's newspaper. Now, there have been attempts to, to codify all of these sins that Paul lists and put them in, into groups. There may be some value to that. I see in here sins of the heart. I see sins of the hand, that is, actions against other people, and I see sins of the mouth. Uh, but really, it's, it's a reflection of, of man's depravity and rebellion writ large. You can hold the Ten Commandments next to these and find where man's in rebellion every step of the way. The, the main point is, though, that man becomes sinful and depraved through and through. I think the most important word to see there is all. He is filled with all unrighteousness. And I think this is exactly what that means. Um, people have been filled with all unrighteousness to the point that there is nothing evil that they are incapable of. That is, you can't imagine a sin that humanity is not capable of. They are full of all unrighteousness all the time. And what Paul says, this is evidence of a depraved mind. So in review, when humanity exchanged the truth for a lie, Adam and Eve says, God, we are not satisfied with the perfect environment that you've created for us. We're not satisfied being the worshipers. We want to be the worshiped. We want you out of our lives. God said, okay. And the natural consequence of that is not evolution, man growing more sophisticated and more righteous. The opposite is that man has been going downward, downward, downward. We see that in all humanity. We see this in cultures. We see this in families. We see it in individuals. 
When we go down this path of sin, oftentimes the judgment for sin is more sin. And we get farther and farther and farther away from God. Now, in essence, we say, God, we want you out of our life. And God says, all right, you got it. But here's what the result will be. Be very careful, dear friends, what you ask for. Because when a person asks God out of their life, he often gives them exactly what they want. Now, this explains a lot, doesn't it? One of the reasons that the Lord leaves the church in the world, he says, is to be light, to, to show the truth. And a lot of people in the world are questioning, how do we get here? Why is the world in the mess that it's in? Why are things so bad? Well, we as Christians have the answer. Here it is, right here in Romans chapter 1. It explains a lot of what we see in our own culture. Those of us who are of a certain age remember a time when it was different. Now, there's always been sin and much sin, but there was a time, even in my own lifetime, where certain standards of behavior were accepted and some were not. And now it seems like there's no standard. Every man does what is right in his own mind, and it is incumbent upon the rest of us to accept it as good and right and beautiful. And yet, for those of us who know the Lord, we have a higher standard, don't we? We have the inerrant, sufficient word of God, and we need to stand boldly and say to our culture that's on a fast track to hell, thus says the Lord. And I hear people say sometimes, oh, if this country doesn't change directions, one day the Lord's going to judge us. What the Bible says right here is he's already judging us. What does it say? He says, this is the evidence for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He is angry and wrathful against all sin all the time. This is not something to come in the future. This is a present reality. And if I didn't know the Lord, I'd be overwhelmed. And I would be in despair all the time as I see what's going on in our country. But... Uh, it's not hopeless. And I want to spend the rest of our time today talking about the hope that is found in the Lord Jesus. It seems hopeless. Let's be honest. But Jesus said to his disciples, with men it is impossible. With God all things are possible. Jesus told a story during his ministry, one of his most famous, that describes a very similar situation. The story is of a man who owned a large farm. He had two sons. And they stood to inherit this large farm. But one of the sons decided he couldn't wait for his father to die. And so he went to his dad and said, I want my inheritance now. Can you imagine if your own adult child came to you and said, Mom, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. I want my inheritance now. That's exactly what he did. Can you imagine the gall? But can you imagine the grace of a father who didn't blow up in anger and cut him out of his will. He said, all right, son, I'm going to give you what you want. And he gave him his share of the inheritance. And you know the rest of the story. This son went off into a far country and he wasted his inheritance with what the King James says is wanton living, a debased lifestyle. And it went downhill and downhill and downhill. And the natural progression of sin, remember God has created his universe with laws, consequences, 
He ends up in a pig pen, eating the slop that he was feeding the pigs. The scripture says he came to his senses and he said, even the servants in my father's house have more than enough bread to eat. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back home and I'm going to throw myself at my father's feet and beg him to let me be a servant in his house. And that's what he did. The father was waiting on that son, looking down the road, I take it. And when he saw him coming, he ran to him and he embraced him. And he said, put a robe upon his back and kill the fatted calf because my son that was lost is home. This is the story of hope. This is the story of someone who's had all restraints removed from their life. This is someone who wanted God's authority out of their life and he gave them what they want and it led to the natural conclusion of the pig pen, vile filth, and yet here's a father who's ready and willing and with open arms receives that sinner back to himself, not as a servant, but as a son. He said, put the ring on his finger. Show that he's part of this family. The father gave him what he wanted, which is his freedom, but the father was waiting to take him back when he came. Now, I know these verses and this message are particularly painful to some of you because many of you have prodigal children and grandchildren. Um, those who said at some point in their life, I want you and I want God out of my life forever. And the conclusion for some of them is, is drug addiction and alcoholism, which leads to incarceration. Some of them, it led to homelessness. And some of them became homosexuals. And some of them have turned their back on everything you ever taught them. But I want you to hear me say very clearly today, don't give up. Don't give up on your loved ones. I told you to hold your place in 1 Corinthians because we'd come back to it and now's the time to do that. Let's turn there now. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And some might be wondering, Pastor, why do you preach on something like that? You know that um, it's not what people want to hear anymore. In fact, um, most people would think that we were absolutely moronic for believing things like that. Well, here is why we must preach against sin, even in this modern world. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So when your rebellious children, your rebellious grandchildren say, how can you believe that stuff? You can't love me and believe that stuff. Here's what you say. It is because I love you that I have to warn you against your lifestyle and against sin. Let me say it again. He says in no uncertain terms, do not be deceived. Now, who is the author of deception? Satan. What did he do in the Garden of Eden? God said, if you eat of this tree, Adam and Eve, you will surely what? Die. Satan came to Eve and said, has God really said? 
And so when God brings Adam and Eve and the serpent up before him in Genesis chapter 3, and he asked Eve about what she did, she said, the serpent, he deceived me. And when he comes to Adam, what did he say? The woman who you gave me, right? He, he passes the buck, and then God's judgment came. And so do not be deceived. Satan is trying to deceive you that there are no consequences for sin. But don't be deceived. It's, it's just as true as gravity. It's as true as what goes up must go down and water goes to its lowest point. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of, of God. Now, if you didn't find your particular sin in that list, don't feel like you've missed out. That includes all of us. But verse 11 is where I want to draw your attention to. He's writing to Christians who are living in a culture that's every bit as debased as the one we find ourselves living in today. And this is what he says, verse 11. Such were some of you. God is able to save drunkards and drug addicts and liars and adulterers and fornicators and hear me, homosexuals. God's grace is greater than our sin. And apparently in the church at Corinth, there were representatives of all those kind of lifestyles. And then he used this great conjunction, but, he says, you used to be that way, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. Friends, that is the gospel. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners and there's not a person here today, no matter what lifestyle or sin you're in, that if you will repent of sins and in contrition call on the name of the Lord and seek His face and for forgiveness of sins, that He'll cast you out. He rejoices. He delights in saving sinners. And that includes you. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's why we have to preach against sin and why we preach passages like this in our church. I want to say to parents and grandparents, don't give up on your loved ones. Be like that father looking down that road, always ready to welcome them home if the Lord would grant them faith and repentance. And I'd say to our church as a whole, don't quit praying for our nation. I know you love your family. But I also know that many in this church love our country. And it broke our heart to see what happened 20 years ago yesterday. And it continues to break our heart that our country continues to go farther and farther away from the Lord. And many in this church are praying for revival. Don't stop. If you think our nation is depraved now, and it is, wait until the Christians are removed from it. You see, I said that we're to be light in the community. The other thing, we're to be is salt. And what salt does, it preserves meat from being as rotten as it possibly could be. And the only thing standing between our nation from it being as rotten as it possibly could be is the presence of Christians in it. And so we don't need to be less vocal, we need to be more vocal. We don't need to be less influential, we need to be more influential. We don't need to be less evangelistic, we need to be more evangelistic, and we need to be more prayerful. And I've told you before, I'm going to say it again. The word that almost spontaneously comes from my mouth every time I stop to pray for this nation is mercy. 
hard for me to pray for blessing, knowing what I know about our nation. And I love our nation. And what I pray for most often is mercy. Lord, grant us mercy. We, we deserve judgment. Did you see what he said here? Verse 32, and although they know the ordinance of God, man knows God. Certainly people in our country, they know God. He's written it on their heart. Many of them grew up in, in schools that the Ten Commandments were posted on the walls. They have an intellectual knowledge of God and his judgments. And, and they know inherently that those who practice these sins are worthy of death. They know that. But they suppress it. They push it down. And, and it's not only that, it's not only that they do the same, that it's not only that they practice those sins, but they give hearty approval to those who practice. And they said, come join us. So what has become right is that which used to be shameful. And that which was right has now become shameful. And the only hope or prayer for a person, a culture, a nation like that is Lord have mercy. Our God is a merciful God. The fact that we woke up this morning and took a deep breath and he gave us another day is evidence that he's merciful. And every time that we sin and live to see another day, it's the evidence of God's mercy. So we can come to him based on his nature. But hear me, what this chapter is saying is that God's mercy doesn't last forever. It didn't last forever in Noah's day, though he gave them 100 years to repent. It didn't last in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah. They couldn't find even five righteous men. And God's patience and mercy will not last forever today. Today is the, the day of salvation. Run to Jesus. Pray for mercy. Seek his face for yourself, for your family and for our nation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the, your word. It is a hard word today. Hard to read, hard to talk about, because it's so obviously true. Lord, you've held a great mirror up to us today. You've answered a lot of questions about why we're in the condition we're in through your word. It's not because you haven't given us enough information. It's because the information you gave us we don't want. Man doesn't want to worship a God who holds him accountable for sin. He wants to have his inheritance now. He wants to have freedom to sin without consequence. And that's not the way you've created the universe. So what happens is that when man sins and you remove your hand from him, his sin goes to lower and lower and lower places. And Father, our only hope mercy we know that if we got what we deserve we'd be dead Lord you're God of mercy and that is manifested most clearly and you're sending Jesus into the world to die for sinners like us John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish that is they would not receive the consequences and the wrath that is due them but would have eternal life instead you tell us, Lord, that the wages of sin is death. If we got what we deserved, we'd all die. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for some in this room and over the internet today who, Father, uh, 
have been convicted through the preaching of your word and by your spirit of their own sin guilt. And so, Father, that's a good thing. We, we are grateful. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. The fact that you've been merciful up until this point informs us, Lord, that you're a God of mercy. But, Lord, we also know as we've read these two weeks, you're a God of justice. You have a fixed disposition of anger against our sin all the time. And one day, Lord, we're going to be held into account. And so, Father, you made a way that we could be right with you, but you only made one way. Jesus said in John 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So, Lord, if there's even one in the sound of my voice who knows you not, I pray they'd run to Jesus today. Despair of their sinfulness, despair of anything they're hoping for, any excuse they've held on to tightly for years. Lord, lay them bare today that they are without excuse. And then, Father, grant them faith and repentance. Lord, I pray for adult children of parents in this church who have broken their parents' heart through their rebellion. Grandchildren, Father, who have gone their own way and said to their family, I want you out of my life. I want God out of my life. And Lord, I know they're brokenhearted. I pray you'd encourage them today. Help them not to give up. With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Lord, I pray for our nation. I intercede and intervene today and beg you to cover us with mercy. Don't give us what we deserve. Give us mercy. And then, Father, send revival. May it begin in this church. Lord, you've done it before. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We pray, Father, for a spiritual, spiritual awakening in this country that only can be explained that you did it so that you'll get the glory for it. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.